0: Our scripture today is found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Just one more word by way of announcement. We. Um, as per Jeff's announcement, we need extra help with uh, the teardown as well. So when, you, when we're done with the service, and before you go say hi to your friends and hug and kiss and have coffee t- together, would you just take your chair and put it right over here along the bleachers and stack it up there, and then the rest of our team who are volunteering, that makes it easier for them to get them away. Would you do that? All right. <clears throat> Let me pray for us, and then we'll spend some time in God's word together. Heavenly Father, Thank you. <laughs> for calling us out of darkness into the light of your presence. We need you, and we're desperate for you. And uh, we want to know you better through your word and through the the various things we do here at this service. So open our minds, open our hearts, open our lives, and uh, everything about us to who you are as we study um, what you have to say about the way we spend most of our life the way that we spend a a large portion of each day. Be with us now as we study your word together, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. It's great, great, great to be with you. My uh, family and I stayed in town for New Year's, and uh, it was great. We went to Tulsa and Seth's party, which by all accounts was uh, the best version of this party that's ever happened. There's evidence on Facebook of us actually there. The kids' presence changed the nature of the dance floor, however, so I I don't know if everybody shares that view, but we had a great time. So... Uh it's, it's good. And we feel rested, too. Thank you for your prayers, for us being away with Anne-Marie's dad. He's still in rehabilitation, but he's doing much better. And, and they're talking every day on the phone. And his uh, cogency is back. He was having trouble with all the things that were going on with that. So a lot of encouraging things happening that way. And we're grateful for your prayers. Please continue to lift us up. The great news is that we actually rested quite a bit over break. So we feel renewed for 2014 and for time together with you. Um, it's delightful. To be here with you, Diana. We're gonna. Diana mentioned that we're going to start a series on the gospel and your work. Um, a lot of us, me included, really struggle with. Okay, we we proclaim certain things about who Jesus is and what He's done on Sunday, and that means that that's come to mean certain things to us in practical ways throughout our life, but a lot of us really struggle when the rubber hits the road. Does that fit in with everything? Does that fit in particularly with the way that I spend my days and most of my hours working? And and particularly if I don't like what I'm doing and if I struggle in what I'm doing or how does it fit in? And so we're going to take time. The more that I've talked to you and spent time with you over the past couple of years, the more I realize that this is, there's just a huge question mark there. Is there You know, if God is who he says he is, what difference does he make to our work and what we do and how we live our lives as we do that? There are a lot of answers that Christianity has given, uh, but not. One of them is in fullness what God would have us do. And so we're going to spend some time over the next couple of months looking at what God says in the fullness of his word and address what it means to work distinctively because of the gospel here in Philadelphia. And so it's going to be exciting. And we talked about some of the new things that are going to happen at the end of each month. We're going to have vocation groups so that you can actually spend time working out together. What does this look like? To uh, not only know Jesus, but have him affect the way that we do our particular field, whatever our field is. And so I'm excited about it. I think that you will be too, especially as we unpack some of the surprising things that God has to say to us from Scripture. But one of the things that uh, Diana did... uh, as we were preparing for this, she sent me an op ed article from the New York Times uh, the end of November, this past, just this past year, this past November. And it was an article about the millennial generation, so anyone born after 1980, right, and what their relationship to work is. And it's interesting because it was written by two professors Emily Smith, she's an editor uh, at the New Criterion uh, and Defining Ideas at Hoover Institution Journal and then Jennifer Acker, who's a professor of marketing at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And both of them had come to say, look, we've seen the media, we've seen when you Google what the millennials like in relationship to work, that it's not very kind. The descriptions that come back are not very kind. Uh, and what they did in this article, this op-edit piece, is that they began to say, look... Millennials, because we deal with millennials every day in our field and, and ed- education, millennials' view of work is actually changing and it's different. It's not so much that they've landed in a view, but that they're, they're morphing. They're morphing in their relationship to the work. And the, and the most significant thing that's happened recently is that the way that they, millennials will um, approach work is not so much for happiness. I'm going to go out and get a job so that I can get resources so that I can be happy, and so eventually freed from work. But millennials are saying, especially after the 2008 crash, uh, millennials are having trouble making money. And so the, there's a shift that's taking place. And the millennials who are in the workplace are saying, according to the op-ed piece, that we want meaning. We want meaning from our work. And in fact, there was a huge survey done. And uh, of the top three things, the millennials, including ones that are just graduating from high school now, want from work is meaning. Of the top three, that's on everybody's list. Now, what's interesting about that is that the, on the one hand, our millennials are onto something. You're on to something. If you believe that, and many of you are here to do just that, you're involved with a vocation in the midst of Philadelphia where work is so hard and it is so difficult and everything you put your hand to pushes back and sometimes bites back. It's very difficult and many of you are giving yourselves to that kind of work where you are say, okay, well, maybe happiness is not the meaning. Maybe financial security is not the meaning of work. Maybe there's meaning in the work itself. If I'm making a difference, then there's meaning. And that's partly right, as we're going to see as we uncover what the Bible has to say. But it's also missing something. Why? As I've talked to many of you, for example, uh, who have come into Philadelphia to teach in really failing public schools. And you have special training, and you're going to these places to make a difference. And you go in, and you have great ideals, and you begin to encounter the system itself, which is so vastly broken that uh, the descriptors I hear are that there are infinite numbers of needs. There are infinite numbers of needs that I see. And I don't know how to address this all. In fact, I, I'm, I'm helping maybe of my whole classroom one or two people and in the span of a whole year. Am I really making that much difference in my work? And so even going to work itself as meaning is not enough. We need something more. What does the gospel have to say about it? What does the gospel have to say about it? And so what we're going to do is look at today in particular, the gospel gives us resources Gospel gives us resources to want to work and to not only want to work in spite of such adversity, but the gospel gives us resources uh, to be assured, as a way to be assured, that the work we're doing will make an enduring difference. All right? So we want to work. The gospel gives us resources to want to work. And the gospel gives us resources as a way to be assured that the work we're doing has enduring difference. And so we're going to look at two basic questions. We're going to say, okay, well, why does Christianity give us these kinds of resources to use? And then we'll look lastly at how. How does Christianity give us these resources to use? All right, so let's get into it. First, why does Christianity give us such resources to use? God reveals who he is through what he does. We spent time learning to pray together. And one of the things we learned about the definition of prayer, contrary to what you might have thought, is that prayer is responding to God in the way that he reveals himself to us. So when God reveals himself to us, we talk back to God about what we're learning from him. And we get to know him better, and we know ourselves better through that. And so God reveals himself in the Bible here to be a craftsman, A craftsman who takes delight in his work. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Right? And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So there's a word work. And then verse 31, if you just uh, go up to that and go, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning in the sixth day. So... There's a, the word work is used to describe what God is doing in creation, and the word very good is used to describe what he's doing. Now, what do you have to know about this? First of all, creation is not the result of a cosmic conflict. I was looking at some of the inherent conflicts in other stories of creations from other cultures, right, and... The book of Genesis is very unique in the way that it brings out the idea that God creates and also dignifies man. A lot of the uh, creation stories from other cultures focus on violence. Creation is a result of violence, some undoing. I was looking on, and this is, uh, I I was looking on the Encyclopedia Britannica online, different from Wikipedia, (laughs) Uh, really excellent resource. It's been a while since I've, I've um, looked at that, and it's a really excellent, excellent resource. So I had fun looking through some of the creation stories from other cultures there. And in the Babylonian story, we have this thing called the Enuma Elish, right? And there the god Marduk, after defeating Tiamat, the primeval mother, divides the body into two parts, one part forming the heavens and the other the earth. Conflict. Creation is the result of conflict, some sort of cosmic struggle, right? Or the West African myth, one of the twins from the cosmic egg must be sacrificed to bring about a habitable world. Conflict. Or the Norse prose, Eda, the cosmos is formed from the body from the dismembered great emir. Or what about this one? The Rig Veda, the oldest Indian text, the cosmos is the result of the primordial sacrifice of a man the Parashatta. Now, the creation narrative in the Bible is vastly different than this. Why? Why? God has no rivals. God has no rivals in the Bible. One uh, biblical scholar, Girhan Von Rad, uh, argued it like this. He said, Unlike any of its neighbors, Israel could conceive of no divine powers on par with the Lord. On par with the Lord despite what was going on in the nations around them and the creation myths that were going on, Israel knew their Lord to have no rival. He was the singular author of creation, and it wasn't the result of a violent conflict. It wasn't the result. One of the commentators writes this, God's creative activity is described twice as what? His work. The Old Testament has two words for labor. The second word emphasizes labor that is raw and unskilled. The first, and the one you use here designates skilled labor work that is performed by a craftsman or an artisan, such as the measure of the finesse and professional skills of God's work. And one of the things that you see in Genesis' account of creation as God's work is that, like all good, satisfying work, the worker sees himself in it. Think about, for example, Beethoven, a Beethoven symphony. Now I've looked because of music school and because of other friends that I had who would just we'd sit down and do this kind of thing. We would actually sit down and pull a line out of the symphony and follow it from start to finish as a single line itself. It's beautiful, it's sometimes strange the choices that are made and and it's there's a wonder to it in and of itself, and yet it doesn't f- reveal the full character of Beethoven as he is of himself as a composer. It doesn't reveal the fullness of the whole symphony, all the parts working together. And so in the same way, God, a craftsman, revealing himself as a craftsman who takes delight in his work, all of the pieces working together reveal something more of himself and his character than just the individual pieces combined. When it's finished, when the work is completed, he looks at the work, he says, this is good. This is very good work. And there's something about himself in it. He takes delight in it. One of the uh, commentators wrote this. The harmony and perfection of the completed heavens and earth express more adequately the character of their creator than any of the separate components can. God worked for the sheer joy of it. It's not conflict. It's not some cosmic struggle. Work in and of itself, located in God and who he is, couldn't have a more exalted beginning. There's wonder to it. It happens in who he is and what he does. It's not a result just of the fall. Okay, so one resource that God gives us for our work and what the gospel means to us is that God reveals himself to be a craftsman who takes delight in his work. Remember verse two, work. Verse 31, good. It's good work. But also we're more of who we are meant to be. The Bible says that we're more than who we're meant. To, we're more of who we're meant to be when we work. Work is foundational to our makeup. It's foundational to who we are. Meaningful work is a foundational part of who we are. Now, this is interesting. Look at verse um, if you go back. Well, okay, you can't do this. Let me see how to how to bring this across to you. Yeah, verse fifteen. Uh, What did God do before the fall? What did God do before the fall? He put man and woman in the garden to work it, right? Work is before the fall. Work is something inherent to who we are and how we respond to God and who he is as a creative craftsman, delighted in his own work. Our work, commissioned by him, is something that we're to take up and hold on to and find meaning in. That's significant. It's not the result of brokenness. You don't have to just sort of like end up at work each day and say, yeah, things suck. You know, this is not what I want to do. Now, that may be true, but the the point is is that work in and of itself is not bad. I'm trying to show you that. Meaningful work is is a foundation of who we are. Work existed and was deemed good before the fall. What does that mean? It means it's very important and very basic before anything else happens in redemptive history, as it's unfolded right here. One of the very first things that happen is that humanity works. One of the very first things. So it's very important, very basic. It's not a necessary evil that came into the picture later. Now, there are problems with our work that we'll get to throughout the series that are a result of evil that came later. And we'll look at how the gospel addresses those. But for now, be patient and just see and look at with me that work in and of itself is a foundational thing to who we are. We don't tend to look at it that way through the lens of our faith. Work is also something so basic that we can take it in long doses without it injuring us. Now, I'm not yet talking about the balance of rest that needs to be injected, and that, our verse talks about that too. But what I mean is this. Think about the ratio. Think about the ratio that God later gives of work to rest. Six days you should do your work. And in one day you should rest, six to one. How often do you think of work that way? Or do you tend to think of, if I could have six days to rest to one day of work, that would be, that would be the thing, right? If I can get to that, the, the four-hour work week, anybody, have you, any of you read Tim Ferriss' The Four-Hour Work Week? He, I mean, he has a program to try to get you to that ratio. It's actually the wrong ratio. And we'll t- try to take a look at why. <laughs> Work is something so basic to us that we can take it in large doses. The ratio mirrors creation itself. Think about how work is woven into who we are and how God makes the world. In his story of creation, the unfolding creation, it takes place during what? A work week. And he sets up our relationship to work in the same way that it's set up according to the work week. That we find meaning, that we find fulfillment, that we find enjoyment. And more. Of, we're more of who we're meant to be if we're working. And the ratio, we can take a lot of it. The ratio is beyond what we would expect, right? That's because we're meant to have freedom through the right constraint as opposed to no constraint. And we don't tend to think of that. We tend to think of freedom as sitting on the beach with a Mai Tai and not having any responsibilities or cares in the world. But I heard one speaker say who had, you know, gathered $500 million in the the time of his career, say that he's spoken again and again to men who have cashed out that way and executives and women who have cashed out that way and there's so many only so many my ties on the beach that you can take before you start to go crazy right or talk to uh, we were one of the things we did when we visited Anne Marie's dad is that her aunt who is in her 90s now is um, still declining in health is in a uh, retirement home community she um, receives a lot of care there and the the her and the people around her are wilting. Why are they wilting? Some have medical reasons for why, but others are wilting because I wish I had something to do. I wish I had something to do. Work is so foundational to who we are that if it's not present in volume, then we wilt. We wilt. The, there's a freedom to the constraint of work, the way God built it into us and who we are, that makes us who we're more of who we're meant to be. One of the illustrations comes from the companion reading that we're doing with our home meeting study. So we're, we're tracking along on Sundays with the scripture. We're doing a home meeting study. We have a companion reader, Every Good Endeavor by Dr. Keller and uh, Catherine Allsdorf. By Dr. Keller and Catherine Rosso. Did I say that? In my head, I heard me say Catherine Keller, which is not what I meant to say. Did I say that? I don't know. Okay. So it's my head playing tricks on me. Not a good work. Head. Don't, don't work like that. Uh, writes it this way. Modern people like to see freedom as a complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it has restricted the water. If a fish is freed from the river and put onto the grass to explore, its freedom to move, soon even to live, is destroyed. The fish is not free anymore, but less free, if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. And so it is with work, with it, which, in the rhythm with rest, is one of the Ten Commandments. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, Exodus 20. In the beginning, God created us to work, and now he calls us and directs us unambiguously to live out that part of our design. This is not a burdensome command. It is an invitation to freedom. We are more of who we're meant to be when we work. There's no doubt about it that this is the way Christianity represents it. So God gives us resources for wanting to work. He reveals more of who he is through his work, and we are more of who we're meant to be when we work. But next... He gives us the resource to make a real difference in our actual work. God commissions human beings, verse uh, 15, verse 15, God commissions human beings to work with him in the ongoing care of his creation. In the ongoing care of his creation. Creation in scripture, if you go back to Genesis 128, it's not listed in your bulletin. But it says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue, have dominion over, right? And in, in Genesis what we see in creation, there's a deep, untapped potential for cultivating all of creation through the work that we do. There's a deeply untapped potential for cultivating creation in the work that we actually do. In Genesis verse chapter one. Verse 28, we're told to fill and subdue the earth and have dominion. The word subdue indicates that though all all God has made was good, it is still to a great degree undeveloped. It's undeveloped. God left creation with a deep untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor. And in 15, in our passage here... He puts human beings in the garden to work it and keep it. The implications of that is that while God works for us as our provider, we're to work along with him in his care and in his provision with one another. We're going to see more of this as, we, as the series unfolds. But one of the things I want you to see here is that working with God helps to cultivate this deep untapped potential. Especially as we serve others. Uh, Psalm 127, verse 1 says this Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And that's interesting. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. God builds the house, but how's He doing it? How is He doing it? He's doing it through the builders, He's providing for us through the builders you see? Martin Luther said the same thing about Psalm 145. He argued that that Psalm 145 says that God feeds every living thing. God feeds every living thing. And Luther looked at this and knew the potential of this and knew this untapped potential in all of creation that is connected with our work. And what he said was, you know what that means? It means he's feeding us through the labor of farmers and others. Think about it for a second. Let's say, okay, I want to make a chair. Some of you can actually build a chair, and that's great. I don't think I could. I mean, maybe with a great deal of help, I could build a chair. But I've never been quite inclined that way. Some of you can. But have you ever thought and considered what it would take to build a chair completely yourself? Say, well, yeah, I mean, I do that, right? I do that with the wood. Well, consider that you need nails or wood screws or other kinds of things. You have to get that from somebody's labor and somebody's cultivating creation. Think about what it would take to actually do that part of building the chair on your own, right? You'd have to go and you'd have to mine the ore and you'd have to refine it and you have to turn it and melt it down and you have to create the metals and you'd have to build the presses and then develop the actual screws themselves before you could even put them in the wood or have a saw to cut the wood. You understand? It's interconnected. We cultivate together. Luther pointed that creation's deep, untapped potential for cultivation and our work is really present here. What are you cultivating? What are you cultivating in your work? What untapped potential are you cultivating as you labor from day to day? It's built into it, friends, and your faith has a lot to say about that. So creation's deep, untapped potential for cultivation of our work, but also work is service. And here, we're commissioned by God to work with him in our service to others. That's part of it. That's part of the untapped uh, potential in creation. One of the things that uh, uh, someone named Lester DeCoster wrote, is a biblical scholar, wrote a book called Work, the Meaning of Your Life writes this, work is one of the ways in which we make ourselves useful to others rather than just living for ourselves. Also, work is one of the ways that we discover who we are because it is through work that we come to understand our distinct abilities and gifts, a major component in our identities. Interesting, no? Major component in our identities. Our millennials, in looking for meaning through work, are onto something. You know, there was an interesting distinction in that earlier article we talked about at the beginning, uh, the op-ed piece, where uh, work for happiness is very distinct from work for meaning. Work for happiness was self-focused, and it was bringing you the rewards, and it looked towards satisfying the things that you wanted through the activity that you were doing. Work to bring meaning was other-focused, it looked to the needs of others. It looked a way to contribute, to make a difference. So that want that the millennial, that millennials are onto to, it's, it's onto something. It's on something. Look, for example, uh, one of the illustrations, Tim and Kathy Keller used to live here in Philadelphia. Did you know that? Were you aware of that? They used to live here, and so they have good friends that are still here. <laughs> Cotty and Glen McDowell, shake their head yes, we knew that. We were part of the senders for, for that team to plant Redeemer. That's right. Uh, Glenn and the Presbytery, and the work of the Presbytery. Um, They have friends here named Jay and Barbara Belding. And Jay and Barbara Belding are entrepreneurs in suburban Philadelphia who work with the developmentally challenged adults. And they work to employ them. And so they have a manufacturing sort of a a fulfillment center that's well-managed and well-run, and it puts... These adults who are developmentally challenged to work in a way that uh, continually focuses on increased productivity, increased time, and turnaround time for the people who would hire them, and it's a great organization. And this is what the Kellers write about it. Said so while working uh, as a special education teacher, Jay was disconnected, by the vocational prospects of his, uh, disconcerted by the vocational prospects of his students once they completed school. Traditional vocational training and employment programs often had insufficient work and therefore extensive downtime with no wages. In 1977, Jay and Barbara established Associated Production Services. It's an enterprise providing quality training and employment for this population. Today, this company trains 480 people who are engaged in a variety of labor-intensive packaging and assembly work for a number of consumer product companies at four facilities. Jay focuses on providing tools and systems that ensure quality and increases in efficiencies and output, and this helps create a culture of success for the company and the people they serve. The buildings are thrilled and grateful to have found a practical, sustainable way to meet their employees' intrinsic need to be productive. Other people want to participate in the work day world. Our people, they say, want to participate in the work aday world to feel positive about themselves and help pay their own way their employees are finally able to respond fully to a vital aspect of their design as workers and creators. Fascinating, right? Because their work, our work as human beings, is not just service to others, but service to others in a way that recognizes humanity's fundamental orientation to work in order to flourish and to help others to flourish. The resources to make a real difference in our actual work, God gives us to that. God gives us those to us. So, so far we've seen why Christianity gives us resources to want to work and to make a difference in our work. And finally, how does it give us such resources? How does it give us such resources? Well, we've seen some of the resources that it's given, but how does it do it? The reality is that all of us at times feel extreme frustration, extreme frustration, worn down even with our work. And much of that deals with the brokenness of our work and the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness of us as people and the brokenness of the people that we encounter, the results of sin in humanity. And we're going to get to that later in our series. We're going to look specifically at the frustration of work. But what I want you to see now and hear is, is that God continues to work in the gospel, God continues to work in the gospel. There's a place in John 5. John was one of Jesus' uh, apostles, spent time with Jesus, uh, wrote some of the letters, wrote one of the accounts of his life, also wrote some of the other books that we have uh, recorded for, there were letters to the church. They were basically letters to early church people to instruct them in different aspects of the faith. And in in John's account of Jesus' life, in, in the work by his name, John, chapter 5, verse 17, he shows us that part of God's glory, part of God's happiness, is that he works, as does the Son of God. Jesus said, my father is always working. Sorry, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I'm working too. My father is always working to this very day, and I am working too. What does that mean? Well, we're going to come to the table in just a few minutes. Very important part of our worship service. As important as the prayers that we say and the songs that we sing and the time that we spend looking at the word. Why is it important? Because it points us back to the work that Jesus finished. On the cross, Jesus said, this is finished. It is finished. The work that I've come to do, I've completed it right here. As I pour myself out for you. And at the table, we not only look back at his completed work, but after he rose victorious and we saw the death of death through his resurrection from the dead. And he overcame the power of sin and death. And he rose again and he sent his spirit so that when you believe in Jesus, through what he's done on your behalf, he sends himself into your heart, into the center of who you are, to remake you from the inside out. So he's doing his work right now with you. And that changes your very orientation to all things, not just gospel things here on a Sunday. It makes you a very different person in an ongoing way. You become more and more like him, he says. He's promised to complete the work that he's begun in you. And so you begin to show more and more distinctiveness of being a child of God through the work of Jesus when you come to know him through faith. He's doing work in you right now through his spirit, and he means to make a difference, much like the Belding's made a difference in the associated uh, delivery system that they had. And, And lastly, it looks forward to the work that he has yet to complete. When we come to the table, one of the things that we'll say, pay attention to the words that we say there the words that we say there, because one of the things we do is we look forward to the hope that we have. How can you overcome the defeating power and infinite need that you see in the work that you put your hands to here and now? There is a hope that transcends all of that, that remains true, whether we feel it or not. And Jesus in his gospel invites you into that, invites you into his work so that you can rest from trying to get meaning from work being meaningful You can get your identity from Jesus' work being meaningful on your behalf and therefore go out and work in a different kind of way because of the hope that you have. When you come to the table, if you're discouraged, there's encouragement there. Why? Because of the work that Jesus has already done on your behalf. Perfect love casts out fear. You no longer have to be afraid He says, through the work of taking the judgment that you deserved, you can come to God in confidence. You can learn from the Father through his spirit and my spirit working through you. We're one. We're three persons, one God forevermore. And we work together to transform you. Come encourage because the work is done. Or if you need encouragement, you come to the cross. Look at what Jesus is already doing. Look at the progress Paul says in one of one of his letters to the early church that, that we should be able to see progress in one another's lives because of this truth. Not perfection. You notice that. When you come to the table, you're not saying, hey, I've got it all together. I know how to be a Christian. I know how to live right. I know how not to live. I know how to check off the checkboxes. The reality is, is that if you start with the first piece that Jesus did away from the He did away with the checkboxes on your behalf. You no longer have to go to God filling check boxes His, He's filled them for you. So what does that leave in your approach to God? Freedom. His spirit works through you now to relate you to one another, to relate you to the circumstances around you, to relate you to the, the vocation that you're in, the studies that you're doing in a different way. You no longer have to be afraid. Jesus died for you. You can't be proud. Jesus had to. So you come to work doing good things. Freely, because of the work that he's doing right now, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And you come with hope. You're not overwhelmed. You're not saying, oh, I don't have the resources in myself to face all of this overwhelming uh, struggle that I face as a teacher or as a social worker or as whatever my, the corruption that's in my job as an executive. Whatever it is, whatever you face, you can face it on your own, but you can face it through the one who's going to make all things new. One of the things, and we'll close with this, one of the things that Dr. Keller brings out in his in the Command Your Reader that we're reading, Every Good Endeavor, was uh, his study of Tolkien. Now, he, if you've listened to him talk at all, you know that he is a Tolkien nut. I mean, he's got, the, he's got a serious inner geek going on, and the more that you talk to him, even personally, you'll see that. And he researches things like no one I've ever seen. You know, like... You know you want to know about Tolkien, don't go to the experts. go to Tim because he knows more about Tolkien than the experts do. But this is what he told he found He found an illustration of these principles that we're learning in a in a story that was published in a small magazine called Leaf by Niggle Leaf by niggle and what had happened was Tolkien. Tolkien had under, undertaken the work. You know, he was an expert in ancient uh, English languages in in Oxford, and he um, was one of the world experts at the time. And he had undertaken this. Uh, task of rewriting English mythology. Unlike Roman mythology or Greek mythology, English mythology had disappeared. We don't have a lot of record of it. And so he went back and, and thought about some of the ancient rudimentary parts of words that existed still. And he tried from those roots and from his knowledge of languages to begin to write the characters and the backstory and the history that became the background for Lord of the Rings. Not even The story itself, he realized to make a viable, um, a viable legend, the English legends come to life, that he would need to recreate the ancient, like thousands of years of ancient history, that he would have to, he created several rudimentary languages with basic syntax and grammar, he had to do all of that himself. And then with that backstory, as he began to work on the Lord of the Rings, he's a, he's an author, so he's writing. And he's frustrated because he's got these complicated histories that go back thousands of years, different languages going on. You've got different characters that are in different parts of the book, and he doesn't know how to resolve them and bring them back. And he's he's struggling and he hit a rut. And he had to put down writing for a while. And he was really dis, you know, he was really despairing. And some of the biographers for Tolkien said that. They're differing on the timing of this, but Tolkien had survived World War I. And this was right around the time. Right around the time that he stopped was right around the time of World War II. Some are not sure if it's impending. uh, Some think it's already in the midst of it. But he went into a despair and kind of a funk. And during this time, he ended up writing. He woke up one morning and he wrote Leaf by Niggle. And niggle in English, Old English language means to work away with and focus on details without much effect at all. And Nigel was a character who was a painter in a town, and the painter in the town was commissioned to do this amazing painting. And he loved to paint uh, trees and leaves and things like that, an amazing painting. He was commissioned to do this, and so he thought he had this vision. And it was so big that he built a canvas so large that he needed a ladder to step up and paint. And the problem with that is that he could never get past more than just painting a leaf. And he'd work on the leaf perfectly, and he would get the dew just right, and he would get the green just right, and he would... And also another problem was that many of his friends would ask him to do things for them and interrupt his work, so he was always having constant interruption. He would never be able to, to actually get it done. Till the story ends, Nigel is at the end of his life, he wants to... He knows that this journey, there's this idea of journey in Old English that uh, means your journey to death. And he knows it's coming and he doesn't want to take it. And he's trying to finish. He really wants to finish his work before the journey comes. And he's getting old and he's working furiously. And, and one of his friends say, hey, it's raining outside. It's cold. It's bitter. And my child needs something from the store. Go and get it. And so he goes and gets it and he catches cold. And he gets sick and he begins to die. And he's working feverishly on his painting. And He dies in the story, before it's ever done. Now, the story continues in that Nigel goes to God through a journey of this higher up and deeper in kind of country where he breaks through and the first step into God's presence are these uh, lands and as he's passing by, he sees not only just the leaf that he completed, but the entire tree. In his vision for what he was trying to paint, he thought about mountains, and he thought about countryside, and he thought about splendor beyond imagination, and it was all there too. And he realized. And some of the, there are two of the biographers who differ in this. Two of the biographers differ in what it meant, what this faith meant to what, what the what is the point of the story. One of the biographers said. What he was trying to do when he worked, it was all there. It's all true. It's all true. And another biographer said, I think it means more than that. I think it means that God allows us to participate in the cultivation, the untapped cultivation, the untapped resources in such a way that we can actually give meaning with permanence and and infuse the things that we're working on here into eternity think about Jesus' hallmarks on his hands. They don't go away in the pictures we have of Jesus in eternity. The work that he did to here matters. It has a lasting duration. So there's something about that story in Leaf by Nigel where he realizes "Ah, my work had meaning even though everything was against it, even though that I couldn't get it done because in the end it is true. And one of the things we see when it comes to the Lord's table is that it is. He's brought you the hope that you have to make a difference in the things you do day to day. Do you believe that? As we approach the Lord's table, consider it, pray over it, respond to him, and think about the meaning of your work and the fact that God is one who works as well. And he's made you in his image, and he wants you to work as well, too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We're grateful that you work. The part of your glory, and part of your splendor, and part of your who you are, and the fullness of your character is that you not only work through creation, as we saw today, through your your word, but that you continue to work even to this day. And Jesus, you work. You worked on our behalf. You're working on our behalf through your spirit. You uh, will work on our behalf when you make all things new and wipe away every tear and take the very small things that we do that not many other people see. And then we feel frustrated by with all the things that go wrong with. And you'll bring to fruition the work of our hands that you yourself have been a part of. And we'll get to see the glory of your plan. And we'll get to see the glory of your presence together in your work, in your gospel, in your sweet salvation. Be with us now as we go into the rest of our work week. Infuse our lives with new meaning, Lord. Give us new resources with which to face all of the complications that we have with working now here faithfully to you and because of your work for us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.